Good morning, village. It was good to sing a number of songs about the cross and how God has brought us into His family and God has brought all of us as imperfect creatures into the church. What's interesting is as we come to the text today, we find that sometimes there's conflict in the church, right? Sometimes there's division because sometimes you all have different opinions. This is a shocker. This is news, I know. But it can happen. We have different opinions. So a a gentleman that I listen to talks a lot about church leadership and to pastors, Tom Rayner. They did just a little Twitter survey. And right there, we should know there's problems. Um, He called it an innocuous Twitter survey. And um, then it blew up. He just asked, what fights or schisms or conflicts have you seen in your church? He knew that was going to blow up. Come on. Um, Here are some of the responses. One, one pastor said there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Hey, we have a business meeting coming up. We can deal with this. Um, there was another church had a petition to have all church staff clean shaven. I'm okay on that one. That's good. Um, there was a church dispute at another church of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Just think about that for a moment. Um, Another church had a 45-minute heated argument about what type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. Um, I love this one. Another church had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I'd like to know who took the picture. Just um, (laughs) Again, think, think about... We could go on and on and on. Another one disputed over whether the worship leader should have shoes on during the service. Now, I didn't check Joshua's feet during the service, but I, I don't know. Um, and and there, there's more and more arguments about which type of green beans the church should serve. And we all know the answer is none. Um, <laughs> sorry, you know my, my preference there. Argument over coffee. Um, <laughs> conflict. This is for, for Pastor Andrew and Pastor AJ. Conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. How dare they? Um, and then this one, I'll end with this one. A disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Because to use potluck contradicts the sovereignty of God. We divide over many things. Just, just a note, all of these are, are true. And that should make us take pause of what are we thinking sometimes in the church or in the world when we put our preferences, when we put our opinions, when we hold them so strongly that we put others down and when we hold them to the point of disparaging other people. You know, we we laugh about these things, but some of these churches, I was reading some of the results, some of these churches split over some of these issues. And this is crazy because we're not keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, when we think of it on a more serious level, I praise God I've never heard any of these here. And, and if, if, if that's where you're at for the business meeting in two weeks, talk to me ahead of time. And, and we'll talk through this text again today. Um, but we laugh about these things. But on a more serious level, churches are, are and like-minded denominations are fighting each other rather than doing the work together. We are eating our own over hearsay and non-essential issues because we know what's best. We can easily fall into the idea spiritually of my version of Christianity is better. 
my version of Christianity is right. A real Christian does blank. Whatever we want to want to put that in. A real Christian's here 15 minutes early. A real Christian doesn't put cream and sugar in their guy. I don't know. There's there's just crazy things out there. A real Christian comes to three services a week, even though we only have two. Or maybe a real Christian doesn't do certain things. And we have to acknowledge, coming to today's text, pride is alive and well even today. And so we're going to look at the early church, the church of Acts, and, and we dare not say, oh, that's them. Because the Holy Spirit put this in God's Word for a reason. We still sometimes think, well, I serve in 15 ministries in, in a week, and that person doesn't do anything. I gave out three Titus Initiative gift cards, and, and some people haven't even taken one. I'm at a point where I can start giving advice to people because I've sort of got it down. I'm more mature than that group. We must be on guard against spiritual snobbery. Along with just spiritual legalism and, and snobbery and pride, we also, in our culture today, have seen the issue of race dominate the news cycle in the last decade. Probably, if we're honest, the last 50, 60 years and beyond. And yes, in this fallen world, there is still and always will be a pull towards some form of racism and claim to racism in the heart of man. We are sinners. We are fallen. We are self-centered people. The pendulum just goes back and forth of which extreme is in the news cycle. And because of the angst in society, and and because of the the politics that have happened, and the extremes we see in the news media, and the wokeism, and and the other side, whatever that may be, because of that, the church, I believe, has been afraid to address the issue. Because we are afraid to offend, and we are afraid to, to talk about hard things sometimes, because it feels like there's no winning on this. Some of you already are feeling uncomfortable. And I ask you to stay. I ask you to explore God's Word together. We need to genuinely talk about racial tension. Not just in the culture, but in the church. And we need to to address it so people are not left on the outside. As a church, we must stand against it. We must stand against racism because racism is sin. Straight up. That's why we have to talk about it. Around the throne, there's going to be people of every nation and tribe worshiping together. And it's going to be beautiful and amazing. And it will be a testimony to the glory of God. And so now in my introduction, I've mentioned spiritual legalism and racial tension. And, and, and I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> but I ask you to look at the text with an open heart today. Look at the text and say, what does God have for us? See, the early church struggled with these two things. And in our text today, the struggle comes to a head. The struggle comes to a point where the church must officially deal with it and come to a conclusion on it. Because they were at a point where the threat of spiritual legalism, the, the, the concepts of racial tension that were pervading people's thoughts without them even knowing it sometimes, were threatening to stop the gospel from going to the Gentiles. And so the church needed to address it. As you turn to Acts chapter 15, which is where we'll be today, 
Acts chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible under a chair right around you. Feel free to take that. Take that home. If you don't have a Bible that you can read, and, and enjoy God's Word as our gift to you. But what we just saw is Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary journey. Things are going well in the church. They were out a year in Asia Minor and parts of Galatia and hitting all of those, those cities there. And, and I say things are going well. Yes, he was almost stoned and left for dead. And, and he was run out of every city he was in. But people were coming to know the Lord. So when, when Paul and Barnabas come back to the church, they say it was a great mission trip. They're like, Paul, you, you still have bruises from the stones. No, it was a great mission trip. And so things are going well. The gospel is spreading. In Acts 4, 27, or 14, 27 from, from last week, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this is an amazing thing because Christianity started in Jewish circles and Jews and Gentiles did not get along. There was an enmity there, a division there, and we see that God has purposed over the course of the last six, seven chapters in Acts to direct the church to, to include Gentiles. And he did it with Peter, and he, he did it in different situations, and brought Paul on the scene, and, and brought the church along to show them this. And so things are going great. And then chapter 15. Because Satan hates it when things are going well for the kingdom of God. And so his next attack is let's, let's stir up legalism, a feeling like I'm better spiritually, I'm more mature. Let's stir that up. And let's stir up some of the racial tensions that have to be there as this baby church is mixing people from different cultures, not just Jews and Gentiles, but then you add the, the Hellenist idea, the, the Greek ideas that are coming in. And this is a diverse, crazy diverse group of people that are coming together as a family of God. And so Satan wants to stir all that up and divide the church and stop what God is doing. My summary for today is spiritual legalism and racial tension threaten to keep Gentiles as outsiders. But the leaders use the example of and commitment to God's grace to unify and nullify potential dividing points, fully accepting Gentiles into the church. I know, it's a long sentence today. But that really covers the essence of these 35 verses that we're going to cover. And as we talk... I want you to see the thread of God's salvation, of God's grace being woven into the solution. Because the church leaders did a magnificent job of handling this in so many things that we can learn from of these two very sensitive issues. And so we come to verses 1 through 5, and I call this section the dispute. The dispute. And what we're going to do this morning, just so you know where we're going, we're going to go through the text for about the first half, two-thirds of our time together and understand the text, understand the culture that's happening behind the text. And then we're going to talk about, okay, what are some of the ways we apply that to our culture today? And so that's um, first side of your notes is understanding the text. Second side will be how do we apply this in some of these sensitive issues. So the dispute. Some, some want Gentiles to become like Jews, to be accepted by God and the church. And so we get one through five and we get what happens here. And some are going to come and say, no, they, they need to become Jews to be Christians. They need to become Jews to be one of us. So verse one, but some men came down from Judea and that's Jerusalem region. Remember, come down is because Jerusalem's at elevation and they're, they're coming down to what is essentially a, a city at sea level. 
So some Jews came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a strong statement, by the way. And so they're coming to a Gentile region and, and to Antioch there, which had become the hub of, of missions, had been the ones that sent out Paul and Barnabas. And they come and say, unless you become circumcised as adult men, and, and you can't be saved. And circumcision, we have to understand, circumcision was a mark to Jews of the covenant. And it, it, any baby boys that were born as Jews, on the eighth day they were circumcised. Anyone that became a Jew as an adult had to be circumcised. And it was considered a way to enter into the Old Testament covenant with God. And so unless you were circumcised, you were not a Jew and you were not in covenant with God. Okay, so you can, you can understand where they're coming from, some of these people that their whole lives have been raised where that is essential to being God's people. And in fact, you can't be God's people without that happening. And so they come and they want, they want full believers. I, I think we need to read some good intentions here. Even, good intentions, bad execution. We'll see that in a moment. Um, but they want people to be fully God's people. But then they put on them some requirements that aren't appropriate. Some requirements that God hasn't put on them yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't put on them. Paul and Barnabas hasn't put on them. You have to be circumcised to be one of us. And, and, and so what's interesting here, and why I said bad execution, they came on their own around church leadership to give this message. So the, the undercurrent here is they believe so strongly in this that they, they didn't go through church leadership. Church leadership might say no. And understand they traveled 250 to 300 miles to get the church right to correct people, to, to make sure their views were heard. And so while their hearts might have been good of including people and saying this is the way it should be, this is the way, at the same time their pride was saying my way is the way. My way is the way. And they hadn't considered what God's way was. And so you have two issues that come up with this. The first question I've already mentioned, how could Gentiles become members of the people of God without keeping the law given to the people of God. And so, like I said, this was the most important mark of Old Covenant. And how could they know it had been repealed? Well, maybe talk to Peter and talk about the sheet. We're going to get there. Um, maybe look at Jesus when he says, I have fulfilled the law, I have completed it. And, and so there are things that they missed in their understanding of the law. And, and so, in essence, what they're doing is, salvation comes if you believe in Jesus and are circumcised. If you believe in Jesus and become a Jew and become like me, which is why there's racial undertones in all this, you have the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. You have spiritually mature and spiritual newbies. And all of this is playing out in the early church. That divides churches. Goodness, if a file cabinet can divide a church, this can divide a church. And And so this is all happening. But the second aspect of this and, and, and these two issues are both dealt with by the leadership in the text. The second aspect is the Jews are trying to figure out how can we have fellowship with Gentiles? How can we be in the same church? How can we go to Taco Bell together? I don't, we, they're unclean. I, I can't be with them. And, and 
if they're circumcised and if they follow the law, then they're clean. Then we can have fellowship in the body of Christ. Do you start to see the dilemma here? If you've been raised your whole life that, that people are unclean and clean and, and they have to be clean for you to eat in their home, for you to have a meal with them, then this is a problem to an early church where fellowship, we saw in Acts chapter 2, fellowship is key. Fellowship is something that God has built into His church and it's beautiful. And the Jewish Christians are like, I don't see how we can. I can't eat at the same table with them. And we see this in Galatians 2. And Galatians 2 is a side passage to this probably dealing with a little bit earlier trip to Jerusalem, the prior trip to Jerusalem, same issues. And so in your quiet times this week, read Galatians 1 and 2, and you're going to see the same issues coming up. And the whole eating together at the table comes up in Galatians 2. And so how can I associate with those that are, are other than me? And really that gives the... What would, what would that tell the Gentiles? We are second-class citizens. We are culturally unacceptable. We aren't really saved. And so this is a serious issue. And so we see here a mix of legalism with, with some cultural dynamics, with some racial dynamics. And, and they were essentially saying, and, and Wearsby put this so well, they were essentially saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It is not sufficient for them to simply trust Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. Now combine this with the Gentile point of view. The Gentile point of view was that circumcision was viewed as repugnant. Okay, so, so there's, this is the other side of the story, right? Paul Harvey, and any of you remember him? The Gentiles viewed circumcision as repugnant. Circumcision became the target of horror, contempt, scorn, and ridicule. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed circumcision with a penalty of death. Mothers with their circumcised babies were killed. And so there was a cultural animosity on both sides. We have a problem. They, well, they have a problem as a church where you have two groups of people who have a, a, a view that they hold sacred or dear or strongly that is completely incompatible. Both sides were predisposed to be against the other's point of view. They were against each other's perspective. But now they're united in the family of God on an issue that was not essential to salvation. And so we're going to see as we explore the text that, that through openness and discussion and listening and asking what God's Word requires, the leadership deals with it. Now, now I just want to throw something in before we go further. I think we'd, if we went around the room, all of us would be against overt racism. All of us would be against saying, I hate this group of people. But what we're dealing here is more subtle, more um, just racial division and some, some issues. When, when I think and when I see the world through my perspective and when I'm incapable of seeing it through someone else's perspective, I will always say my view is right and my view is better. And so this is more, uh, one, one commentator said, ethnocentric behavior, where it may not be intentional, but it's there and something that we all do. And the other thing I want to say today, as we apply this and we get to application, this is more than race. This can be ageism, where we think, oh, 
they're boomers. Okay, boomer. And we, we put down those that are older. Or we can put down the youth as those immature, silly little people that don't know anything yet. And I've heard both of those in the church, guys. And, and it's the same issues of taking one group and saying we are better than another group. I've seen that at times with different places in life and different statuses in life and, and different income levels. And, and so... We will be talking about racial tension today as, as we go through this, because that's what they were dealing with. Expand that to any time my group's better than yours. And that may be race, might be skin color, it might be age, it might be a whole number of things, what music we like, what music we listen to. But both sides here are struggling with it. So Paul and Barnabas in verse 2, because we better get past verse 1. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, just so you know, that means a heated, long argument. Okay, so this is not like, oh, that's what you think, oh, that's nice, oh, that's what... No, they're going at it. So after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So get the scene. These people come and say, without church's permission, oh, you need to do this to be believers... To be accepted as one of us, you need to become one of us first. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no way. No way. We just spent a year going through town after town watching the Holy Spirit bring people to Himself. This wasn't one of the requirements. And there's this dissension there. And at some point, the church said, you know what, we're not resolving this here. Let's go to leadership. Let's take it to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was still the leader of the, the church, the, the head of the church there, the, the apostles and now elders have been appointed there. And so Paul and Barnabas take it to the leadership to trust leadership's judgment. Especially since the, it appears, since these people were from the area around Jerusalem, this appears that this, this requirement was from the leadership of Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas are probably pretty sure it's not, but we've got to clear this up. And so they they go back. Verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I love that verse. They're smart. As they're going, they go through churches, they meet with people and say, you know what God's doing among the Gentiles? And they're getting people excited about what God is doing. And people are rejoicing about these uncircumcised Gentiles who, who are Gentiles... Now are believers. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So they come, they give an update. Um, this, this is not just the leaders, but the whole church is part of this. And it's really important. You're going to see this throughout the text today. They keep coming back to what God has done. And the question here is, what is God doing? If God has done, this was the same question to Peter with the sheep. What God has made clean, how dare you call not clean? And so the issue here is let's look at how God is working, what he has done, what his word says. And that's going to keep coming back up. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, yeah, they just said circumcision. Actually, it's more than that. They need to keep the whole law. They need to be fully Jewish to be believers. 
this, this get the hair on the back of your neck going a little bit? This is wrong. This is wrong. Now, again, you can understand some of the Pharisees had become believers. They were the keepers of the law. They, they, they knew the law. And so they were having a hard time seeing Jesus as fulfilling the law and knowing what to do with that. But it still doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed. And so starting at verse 6, we have the council. First we had the dispute. Now we have the council. Leadership listens to all and evaluates with God's word, his work, and his grace. Leadership listens to all and evaluates with God's word, his work, and his grace. Verse 6 starts. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. So they came in an official capacity. They made a council and said, okay, let's, let's deal with this. Let's hear each other out. Let's figure this out. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So again, there much debate. This was a chance where everyone with an opinion got to share their opinion. Now, I'm not saying we do that on every issue. We don't need 200 opinions on what color the walls are. Um, unless they're going to be purple. Then we're like, no, no, no. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, but they, this is such an important issue that they want to hear from both sides. They don't just shut down one of the sides. And so they listened to the debate in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. There you have God's work again that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so Peter here is actually going to say four things in the next few verses. The first one is, by the way, God chose me to reach the Gentiles. It wasn't man's idea. This was God's idea. And then we get to verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did with us. And so the end of seven, they, they believe God who knows the heart bore witness, gave them the Spirit. You get the second two things Peter brings up. The second one is they're Gentiles, but they genuinely believed. And don't take my word for it. The third thing he mentions is God's the one that validated that with the Holy Spirit. So his argument is talk to God. <laughs> He's done this. And so God gave them the Holy Spirit and, and his point there in verse 8 is just like us, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And so, so Peter here is saying, there's equality here, guys. Neither of us had the Holy Spirit. We believe. Now we both have the Holy Spirit. And, and part of this is they, God gave them the Holy Spirit without them being circumcised, without them becoming Jews. And this is a powerful argument. And he goes on in verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them. There's no like spiritual hierarchy. We're a little better because we're Jews or or because we believe first. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so Paul's fourth point, or Peter, sorry, he said, God chose me to reach the Gentiles. They genuinely believed. God gave them the Holy Spirit. And the last one here in this verse, it's the same process for us. There is no distinction. There is no difference. What a powerful argument. And then Peter goes in for the kill shot in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And, And so he challenges them, why are you challenging God's acceptance? If God accepted them, why aren't you? That is a powerful, powerful question. He says they're putting God to the test, which we saw in the Old Testament at times when a stiff-necked people rebelled against God. And, so, and they, they would have known the reference. They were Pharisees. <laughs> and, and so he said, why are you putting to God to the test? And then he adds on, by the way, none of us were saved by the law because none of us could keep the law. And in fact, we needed Jesus Christ to perfectly keep the law, die for us, for, for our sins, so we could come to Him. And so he, he challenges them. If God's accepted them, maybe you should do. And then verse 11, which I would underline and highlight, I think it's the center point of the chapter. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus, just as they will. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so Peter brings grace into it. And he says grace is part of the answer here. We need grace. They need grace. God has given grace to us. And grace means unmerited or undeserved favor. It means I've done nothing to earn what Jesus did for me. I've done nothing to earn salvation. And and Jesus died on the cross completely of His own volition, completely of His own choice to save me. I can never be good enough for salvation. I am a wretch. And that forms the foundation for Peter's argument. We all need God's grace. And praise God, we have His grace. Verse 12 gives the answer. Or, or gives what, how people responded. And all the assembly fell silent. It's probably my favorite phrase. <laughs> they fell silent. They didn't know what to say. And so then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they got to hear about the whole missionary journey and what God was doing to bring Gentiles to Himself. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So we've heard from Peter, we've heard from Paul and Barnabas, and now James. This is James, the brother of Christ, who now looks like he's the head of the church in Jerusalem or the head of the the group, the the elders in Jerusalem. And so he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Simeon is another name for for Peter. So this is Peter, Simon, Simeon. Um, They just got a lot of choices with names. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Oh, what a beautiful phrase that God took from the Gentiles a people that would be called by His names. He adopted them in just like us. And, and James here knows that he's dealing with a Jewish population who, who believed Jews were the people of God. And this is being redefined, and he's going to redefine it by quoting Amos here to say this was God's intention all along. The people of God is being redefined as those who are saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen, that's us too if we're saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And so he says, this is what God has done to take for them a people for His name, a people that represent Him, that, identif- that He identifies as His. And in and verse 15, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes Amos here. 
He says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And so this, this happens after um, Jerusalem has fallen, the house of David has fallen, and it's a promise that God will restore the line of David, that he will restore the kingship to David. It's a reference to Jesus Christ is what, what James is saying here. And because Jesus became the ultimate king, right? The final king. And he restored the line of David. But verse 17 is where, where James is going with it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so James is saying, oh no, this has been God's intention all along. The Gentiles are just as much a people of God as we are. They are just as much God's people as, as we hope that we will be. And so we see just this beautiful statement that the Gentiles, as they are, if they have faith in Jesus Christ, are believers. And so again, we see full acceptance and equality through Jesus. Where people called for His name. The Gentiles are a people called for His name. The Jews are a people called for His name. Those that believe in Jesus Christ. Which is why Peter could later write in 1 Peter 2, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we get the conflict, we get the counsel, and now the decision. They chose to fully accept the Gentiles in a way that showed grace to all. 19 through 21, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And he starts by saying, we shouldn't add a burden on them to be circumcised. That's what that means. We're not going to require it. We're not going to make things more difficult. We're not going to add something upon the grace of Jesus. They don't have to. And I can imagine some of the people going, oh, oh, really? No, no, all this talk and that's what you say? And then 20 and 21, though, give a little bit more. But we should write to them to abstain from the things that things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, these two verses are really hard to understand. Number one, if we're not adding anything to the gospel, why do we ask them to do four things? It's a legitimate, legitimate question to ask of the text. And then what, what on earth does 21 mean? So let's break it down because there's two ways of looking at these verses and I think it's best to look at them both because I think they overlap. The first is they, they, that he just said circumcision is not required, but all of the things listed there are associated with idolatry. All of those things that are the things the Gentiles struggled with. And so the idea here is, and one of, one of the ideas that I think we see is, yes, we're not going to add a non-biblical requirement of circumcision on the church, but we are going to add a biblical requirement to stay away from idolatry. We're not adding it. That's just part of what faith in Christ means. That's part of what God's Word says. It's a call to holiness. And so abstain from things polluted by idols or offered in the worship of idols. Don't touch them. Abstain from sexual immorality. We know that that is a a 
prohibition by God in the Old and New Testament. It's an issue of holiness. Abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. And, and, and yes, the Jewish, um, the Jewish culture said you couldn't have blood in your meat. You, you couldn't kill an animal by strangulation because that wouldn't drain the blood. And so blood was considered a life, a part of life that God had given them. But also, idolatry and idol worship had, had, had taken this on as part of who they were. And so, like Origen, one of the early church fathers said, as to things strangled, we are forbidden by Scripture to partake of them because blood is still in them. And blood, especially the odor arising from blood, is said to be the food of demons. Perhaps then, if we were to eat of strangled animals, we might have such spirits feeding along with us. And what he's saying there is, this is part of the practice of, of demon, uh, worshiping a demon. This is part of the practice of idolatry, so stay away from it. This is good, this is right before God to worship Him alone. The other, the other reason for this is these are the issues, these are the primary issues that would have kept people from table fellowship together. These things the Jewish, the Jewish culture found repugnant. And what's interesting is James is saying you don't have to be circumcised. That's an undue burden on you, but you do have to be considerate about your fellow Christians. And if there's things that are repugnant to your fellow Christians, don't do them. This is Romans 14. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. This is, this is something that is throughout Scripture of where to be considerate and live in an understanding way towards each other. And so what we have here is the, the legalism and the, the racial tension is not a one-way street. He's saying there's things on both sides you can do better. There's things on both sides you can do to show grace to each other. And so he says, no, you, you, you don't have to be circumcised. That's, that's not biblical. But you do have to live in understanding and in grace towards your brother or sister in Christ. These would have hindered fellowship. Verse 21, by the way, it, it, the argument appears to be these are things that are still taught in, in, in the synagogue today. And those Jewish Christians that are still trying to, to hold to their faith and to some of the Jewish culture, they're still being taught that these are repugnant. And so don't stir that pot. Don't go there. Show consideration by putting others before yourself. Then we get to point number four, the grace-filled letter. The church accepted and unified in the decision to bring Gentiles into the church on God's terms rather than man's. The church accepted and unified in the decision to be Gentiles into the church on God's terms rather than man's. It's interesting, just listening to this. One of the things you're not going to see is a lot of argument after the decision is made. It looks like everyone just said, okay, we talked about it, we decided... We're going to trust the, the apostles and the elders. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. They sent good men to go along and share the letter with the following letter. The brothers, both with the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch. 
I would underline to the brothers of Antioch, right from the start, he's saying, we're family. We're fa- you're accepted. We're family. That's very intentional, I believe. To the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and, and Cilicia, that's all in the same area. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. He's like, by the way, those weren't, <laughs> those weren't commands from us. Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and, and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. They're going to explain it. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So he's like, we're not adding the burden of circumcision, but it would be in your best interest to do these things or to not do these things. And the response was great. So when they were sent off, they went to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And it goes on to talk about um, that it was accepted well. This was a crisis point in the early church where legalism and cultural tension and racial tension could have divided the church, could have stopped the gospel. But as our title for the series, The Gospel is Unquenchable, Holy Spirit isn't going to let anything stop the gospel. So how do we apply these two things? And on the back page, I just have some bullet points, and I don't want to spend a long time on these, but um, just sort of put them out there to think about. How do we overcome these things? And grace is the key. Being people of grace is the key. People that understand the grace that's been given to us, the depth of that, and then people that can then share that with others and horizontally treat others with that same grace. We start with legalism. A real Christian does this, or a real Christian doesn't do this. Grace fights spiritual legalism because we realize we are to give grace in the very same way we have received grace. We we realize we're to give grace in the same way we've received grace. And and so just some of the bullet points there, some some ideas, and some of these are from some of the authors, and and, and I I took them because they were so good. First, as people under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. As people under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. So the question we ask is, is this a moral issue in the Bible? Is this clearly expressed in God's Word? If it's clearly expressed, then now we're, we're holding brothers and sisters accountable, like sexual immorality. But what about those gray areas? What about those things that aren't clearly expressed? We've, we've got to be careful. You know, I remember growing up, the church felt like playing with playing cards was a sin. Or going to movies was a sin. And there was a lot of reasons for that. But, but now that has changed because those are not clearly expressed in Scripture. But staying away of certain kinds of activities of those and, and certain immoral activities of those are there. You know, we have all kinds of issues in the church, right? We have child-rearing techniques. We, we could have a seminar on that and divide this church really fast. Vax or no vax? How, how, how should the church be run? Musical preferences. What kind of car can you get and still be a good Christian? 
And if you love family, you'll drive a minivan. Which, sorry, I guess I don't love my family. Um, I do. <laughs> they're, they're here. And we joke about these things, but we can add all of these non-biblical requirements on each other to view them as spiritual. And it's wrong. We're adding to the gospel. One author said, extra-biblical restrictions take their toll. Perhaps even more serious, they block the proclamation of God's grace. And so, as people under grace, we don't make those requirements. And that sort of goes with the first issue um, that we saw with the people coming and requiring circumcision. They're making non-biblical requirements. The second issue is because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. This was the request of the Gentiles. Don't do those things because you want to show grace to others. We gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Grace puts others first. Grace doesn't grasp for ourselves what we deserve or our rights. It, it gives other people that undeserved favor, that unmerited favor. And so this is why Paul said questions we should ask are like, does this cause my brother to stumble? If so, I'll gladly restrict my freedom for the sake of others. Third point to, to combat spiritual legalism, which just sort of um, brings it all together, because le- both of these things come from pride. Both of these things come from too high of a view of ourselves. So, so the third p- bullet point, give grace to a brother or sister being sanctified. So are you. Give grace to a brother or sister being sanctified. You're being sanctified too. Even if there are sin issues, we're not to despise and look down on each other. We lovingly and gently come alongside. But what I find helpful sometimes is to look at the trajectory of someone's life. Is God changing them? Which, by the way, the Holy Spirit is who brings sanctification, not you or I. So is God changing them? Can I show them grace? But more than that, this is the log and the speck idea. We need to look at our own need for sanctification first. Is there a log in my eye? And I'm looking down on someone and thinking they're spiritually less mature because of the speck? But for the grace of God, go I. And so God has given you grace. God has given them grace. Can you? Even if they offend you? Even if they have more immature beliefs than you? One of the things I often hear throughout my years of ministry is, oh, I can't be in that group because I'm more mature than them. Or they're immature. I hear that over and over. Every time I hear that, I know it's a lie. Every time I hear that, I know it's a deception from Satan because the very statement itself is an immature statement. I mean, let's think of the logic of it. But Satan will use that to try to divide us and keep us from showing grace to each other. The last point, racial tension. I'm trying to get through in time. Like I said, this is hard to talk about. No matter, no matter your race sitting here today, and we have, we have a variety of different skin colors and races, no matter your race, our minds will naturally jump to how the other side has abused the discussion. And you will find legitimate cases where the other side has abused the discussion. Don't let that stop us from, from seeking holy lives and seeking what God's Word says about this. We must have this discussion. Grace fights racial tension because we realize not one of us deserves God's love or salvation. We are equally sinners and equally covered by God's grace. 
you often hear me, and it's going to come up in one of the points, that we're equal at the foot of the cross. And that's the foundation here. That's where grace comes in. And, and again, think race, think age, think denomination, think culture, think any groupings that we look down on or we separate by. You know, one of the things, just a side note, I love that chapter 15 is here and the church had to deal with, with racial tension because that means they were reaching the world. If they didn't have this chapter, if they didn't have to deal with this, then we wouldn't be here because the Gentiles were never reached. And so this is a good thing they're having this discussion. So how is the grace, how is grace the answer to racial tension? And, and just a, a side note, as long as the church has imperfect people, there will be racial tension. Either overt or subtle, because it's an expression of pride and self-centeredness. Anyone here completely get rid of pride and self-centeredness yet? Yeah. That's why we have this discussion. So how is grace the answer? A, or point number one. Grace sees people through God's eyes as equal. When God looks at us, He says every one of us is made in His image. Every one of us, He has extended the offer of grace to. Every one of us. There is no distinction between races or cultures, no special treatment. If anything, all of us put together reflect God's image better than any of us alone. I had, a, I had a whole list of verses. I'm not going to be able to read them about there is no distinction because that's wording that keeps coming up throughout Acts, in Romans, in James. There is no distinction. Grace does not value one group above another because no group is deserving of it. And so every group is equally valuable, equally important, and equally heard. And so if we're, to, if we're to put this into practice, when I see someone, I should see someone made in God's image that needs Jesus. If I'm going down the street and if I see someone in Muslim garb, my, my th- first thought shouldn't be, oh great, here we go. My point should be in my head, that person needs Jesus. How can I love them? How can I, I bring them into the kingdom? If I see someone different from me, if, if I see someone driving different than me, And my first thought is, stupid blank driver, and fill in, fill in whatever you want there. And that could be race, that could be age, that could be gender. I am saying that about someone made in the image of God. And that is sin. Think about that. When we disparage people, when we put groups down, we are putting down people that God made in His image. I love how the church as a whole is learning this. And even theological conferences, it used to be that only, only people from churches in North America would come to them. Because the other churches were newer and less than. And now we're seeing leaders from churches in Africa and leaders in churches from South America and North America and, and even Europe, a little bit, uh, no, <laughs> Europe, all coming together because all have something to say doctrinally. All are valuable. And so we need to start seeing people through God's eyes as equal, as made in His image. Second bullet point, the fact that we all need grace, and I've sort of already talked about this one, the fact we all need grace puts us all on equal footing at the foot of the cross. We are all saved by grace alone. 
And we sing the song Amazing Grace and it says, saved a wretch like me. One of our other songs this morning said, a wretch like me. Yeah, we all need grace. It's really hard when I realize that I'm a wretch to get mad at someone else for being a wretch. See, when I think too highly of myself, that's where racial tension comes into play. No one is better than. No group is better than. Just write in your notes Romans 3, 21-23 and read that because it specifically talks about that. I'm going to go just a little bit longer. We show grace as we genuinely listen to each other. We show grace as we genuinely listen to each other. This is the example of, of Acts 15. And the council, they heard from all sides. They genuinely listened to each other. Their solution attempted to address the concerns of all involved. And, and if we are to overcome racial tension, if we are to be a people of grace, even if we disagree with someone, even if that's not our experience, we should listen. We should listen to their experiences. We should listen to their perspectives. I, I can remember a year ago, um, we were going through all of the, the, the police issues and, and with, um, with all of the legal issues and all the racial tension that was happening and the riots. And my stepfather-in-law was over and we were having him and, and he's black. And, I'm, and we love him. And, and so because of that relationship and love, we sat down and I said, how is this for you? What's been your experience? And he went on and, and for the next 20 minutes shared what his experience was like. And it, it, was, it was really fascinating to hear because I love him. And you know what? Then he asked me what my experience was watching all this and how it felt for me. And I was able to share. What if we could do that in the church? What if we could actually be like brothers and sisters and listen to each other? And have hard conversations. Instead of saying, oh, that's not true. Or that doesn't exist. We might not know everything. I actually think it's sort of fun to to explore each other's differences. And cultural backgrounds. It's beautiful. Imagine if you're in a family and you have three kids. And this this didn't happen with my kids, so don't go there. Um... Imagine if you have three kids and they all go to the same school and two of them come home and they're like, school was great today. And then the third one comes home and says, school was horrible today. I was bullied. People were mean to me. Now, do we just, do we say, well, actually, that's not what your, your, your siblings said, so that must not be true. Or as parents that love our kids, do we sit and say, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And, and we know that they're going to have their perspective on it. But we need to listen and show grace in that way. It's what the early church did, even though we think that the the, the Judaizers were ridiculously wrong, they heard them out. And in part of their instruction, they asked the Gentiles to show grace to them as well. And that leads to the, the fourth bullet point. If we're to work on racial tension, all parties need to show grace by showing preference for one another. Grace means undeserved favor, unearned favor or preference. And so all parties, no matter which side you feel you're on on racial tension, all parties are to show preference to the other. As Philippians 2 says, to count others more important than yourselves. And so the instruction here is we're not going to require circumcision. No, that's not showing preference to the Gentiles. 
to the Gentiles, live in a thoughtful way to your Jewish brothers and sisters. All were asked to show grace to the other. Unearned favor. And it was right. And so we need to be sensitive to where each other is at. Find ways to include, bridge the gap. Things like verse 23 where he says brothers and reaffirms the family responsibility. All parties show grace by showing preference for the other. And finally, the last bullet point, we put grace on display when we minister alongside people or or groups different from us. And again, not just rage, but age, rage, race. (laughs) That's where culture has gone with it. But age and different groupings. I love when we come together for things like Project Touch and Awana and some of the other things. When I look out and there are all ages participating, living nativity. And we have little kids playing and screaming through town. And we have those that are not little kids sitting and fellowshipping together. It's beautiful. Beautiful when we bridge those boundaries of age, when we bridge those boundaries of skin color, when we bridge those boundaries of culture. Then we are showing a lost world what grace looks like. I know we've taken a little longer on Acts 15. But it's because I think it is so vital for us to get as a church and to stand as a people of grace and against spiritual legalism, against racism, against racial tension, against division of any groups, and say we are family because of God's grace. Which is why we're ending today with the Lord's Supper. This is a symbol of God's grace, right? It's a symbol of His death on the cross the bread representing His body that was given, the juice representing His blood that was given on our behalf for forgiveness of sins. And sometimes we call it communion, communing, because we take it together. The Lord's Supper isn't something we take in private at home alone. It's something we take as brothers and sisters in Christ because we are proclaiming unity. Jews and Gentiles, together, doing the same thing. Young and old, all different skin colors all different cultures. Because what we're proclaiming here is we are all under God's grace. And we are all equal under God's grace. And so we worship Him, not our own preferences. We worship God. And so we'll hand out the elements and then we'll eat together remembering what God has done. Lord God, we worship You together by doing this. I pray that You would help us to just combat any areas where we have spiritual pride. We have spiritual legalism where we think we're better than others spiritually. Lord, I pray that you would reveal any areas where, where we are excluding different groups and different people, Lord, and help us to work to be a body, one body, one family of yours. In your precious name, God. Amen.